0: I am and 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 so Rabbi Steve Jacobson with NRM Streamcast, and we'll spend our time talking to our learning stuff and having fun while we learn. You can always send your questions in the comments to our mailbag at Let's at gmail.com, and of course I will answer as many questions as I can. And you can go to our webpage. There it is, right on the bottom of the screen almost. Let's talk You can go to let's no apostrophes, let's talk You can find the archives, the newer shows. You can leave questions, comments, and of course, the all important donate button where you can help us continue broadcasting. Continue, you call it broadcasting with a podcast? I guess you do. Um, you could just help the show continue to grow and and help us spread the word, and that would really be something quite amazing and, of course, appreciated. So I must tell you, I've been busy the last few weeks. The school that I work in, we just had an amazing matching campaign. The concept has changed over time, but the gist is that the... It, well, we'll call the administration, the fundraisers. We will raise um, a certain amount of money to sort of be put like in a pot, like in a bank. And then the day or the day and a half of the campaign, every time somebody donates a dollar, we pull a dollar out of that pot. The old way it was done is your donors didn't give you any money until it was actually matched. And after it was matched, you went back to the donors. That worked a little bit, but I think they found it easier for most organizations to just go ahead and say, go to your donors, tell them you're having a matching campaign, tell them their money will, will uh, encourage others to give, and uh, that's pretty much how we do it. And it's amazing. First of all, we have a, a nice-sized parent body, and they were heavily involved. And we were encouraging them again. Those of us that do the fundraising, we, of course, have our own job to do, and we've been spending months um, getting all our fundraising done. But for whoever your ambassadors are, in our case, our parent body, um, you give them almost as little um, lead time as possible. Because too much time to think for people that that, that are not into fundraising, it, it just doesn't work. They make one phone call, they get discouraged, and then two weeks later, they're not interested. So you you have to it's it's very very psychological very scientific, and it was just amazing. It was it was fun, it was exciting. People were watching the screens, and you're watching the numbers climb. And it was a six hundred thousand dollar campaign, three hundred thousand to be raised day of, and some people started a little early the Sunday before, and um, and then Monday, and uh, well, it was Tuesday morning. We weren't. Where wanted us to be, so we we had some of our own um, heavily raised um, funds to help. We put a few thousand in, and as the day went on, we spoke to our consultant, and I think he was a little nervous. I I, I must have been the only one not nervous. Must have been. And we're watching as the day goes on. He wanted us, you know, pulling in around thirty thousand an hour, and we fell behind by an hour, according to his calculation. And then, all of a sudden, when we hit the last two hours, things just started flying. you You were watching the money. You couldn't keep up with it. Money was pouring in, and then you get to the last hour, and it's and all of a sudden, you're getting a thousand or two thousand a minute. And it's coming in. And it, 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 there's hundreds of people watching because everyone is rooting for everybody. We had our girls' high school involved. It was really amazing. And about a minute before ten o'clock, we hit our goal. Um, and then it kept going. So uh, we raised already an extra, like, I don't know, twenty, thirty thousand dollars 30000 already because it stays open, but you, you want to get to the goal. That's that's where you want to hit. You hit the goal in, in your time, and everyone's excited. What's the campaign for it? A campaign, of course, is to help the school that I work for, to help uh, children to study Torah in an authentic way and uh, the way it's always been taught, and... That leads into today's holiday. We are just about, in a few minutes, we will be up to the eighth day of Hanukkah. Hanukkah, right? Everybody knows, eight days of lights. Um, And we're going to go through the story. But to keep in mind, the the whole story of Hanukkah is really based on the fact that the Greeks did not want the Jewish people to keep their religion. And they weren't fighting the entire religion. They sort of were picking and choosing some highlights that they felt would, like, bring down the whole nation. And they were pretty good at it. They were smart. I mean, it it was cleverly thought out. But their main fight was Torah study. The main fight was, if we can get the Jewish people to stop studying their Torah, to decide the Torah is not so important. Again, the Greeks were into intelligence and uh, philosophy, and uh, smart people are usually jealous of smart people. If we can, the Greeks were saying, if we can get them to stop their Torah study, their nation is finished. Be all over. They'll become Greeks. They'll, they'll, they'll meld into us. They'll merge with us. It'll be all over. And, of course, that's the famous, everybody knows about the dreidel, right? So everybody knows that the the dreidel has different letters on it and stands for different things and it's like a gambling game. But the idea was, it seems that the children would have these little taps, again, called a dreidel, and they would play these games. So they would have their books that they would study, or if they didn't have written books, they were studying um, with a teacher lecturing. But... As soon as some soldiers came around, they yeah, would pull out their tops and start uh, spinning. Uh, children are allowed to play, right? Can't stop them from playing. You just uh, can't be caught studying Torah. So, our campaign, which really was supposed to run about five weeks ago, but it was too close. I think we talked about it. It was too close to October seventh. That whole situation with uh, Israel and and those Hamas terrorists, and the, the attacks, and the murders, and everything else, and the war with Israel going in, it, it just wasn't a good time. So we actually pushed off our campaign to, uh, to last week, which coincided with Hanukkah. And, you know, certain things are done by mistake. Not mistake, it just worked out, as the, the logo for the campaign was aflame, now, anybody making a campaign over the Hanukkah season is always going to use a flame because, hello, menorah, candles, of course, use a flame. Our flame was set up for the beginning of November. The campaign had nothing to do with Hanukkah per se. However, once we pushed it off to make it uh, right before Hanukkah starts, obviously a lot of the themes um, just easily move over into the Hanukkah season, but it was really quite an amazing campaign. And thank you, Hashem. It was just just amazing. And, uh, of course, all fundraising is important for organizations. Uh, But it's even better when the people in your organization, the people that benefit the most, are actually rolling up their sleeves to help you because that way everyone feels part of. But we already said that this has to do with this has to do with, spelled it wrong over there, this has to do with Hanukkah. So let's talk Hanukkah. Let's, let's take some time, get into the story. We've already sort of jumped ahead. Let's get a little historical. So the story takes place, um, most of the story is in the middle of the Second Temple. The Second Temple lasts about 420 years, and the Greeks were basically in control for the first half this is the, you know, the times of Alexander the Great. This, this was the time period of the Second Temple. So you're talking approximately 2,300 years ago, 2,400 years ago, give or take. So you start, of course, with Alexander the Great. He, of course, conquers <coughs> the world or whatever they consider the world. And as amazing as Alexander the Great may have been, he didn't last very long. I think what he was—he he he ruled about six years. Um, But while he was conquering the world and a lot of places, he didn't have to conquer; he just had to march in. Like in the land of Israel, there was no conquering. When, When the Persians allowed us to go to Israel, we didn't have a standing army. We were allowed to live there. We we were allowed to rebuild the temple. We could be in control, but as far as an army or protecting ourselves, we we were at the whim of whichever nation at the time was ruling the world. You had the Persians, then you had the Greeks, then you had the Romans, that period of the second temple. And even if we had some type of leadership or Kings, they, they, they weren't the Kings that were getting armies together to, to protect the country. It wasn't happening. So the Persians had ruled the country at first. Alexander wipes out the Persians or at least part of the country. He comes marching into Israel. Now, there were those, I believe it was the Sadducees, that had befriended or connected with Alexander, and they said that those rabbis, those rabbis are rebelling against you. So Alexander was marching, and uh, the high priest, Shem'at got got wind of what was going on. So he put on his priestly vestments, or he just dressed up, and he had many priests with him, and they walked with torches. And, like, overnight, they're both marching towards each other. And then they, as they meet up in the morning, and Alexander sees them, the he said, those are the Jews, those are the ones you want to kill. And amazingly enough, Alexander gets off his horse. He bows down to Shem'at Tzaddik. And, he's, and they said, what are you doing? And I said, what the, I see a picture of this rabbi every night before I go to battle. And I'm victorious. Now, the question is, what does that mean? So, some say it means that yeah, God put a vision in his head that he should see this rabbi. So, when this story would happen, uh, the Jewish people would be protected. Others say he was a very holy person. He looked, he looked holy. He looked, he didn't look like an animal. You see, some people, they can look like animals. But when you see somebody who has that shine, who you, who you see this is a human being, you could tell. So Alexander said, my goal of conquering the world is to have people look like human beings, to not be animals, to be educated, to be to be special. This is what I'm battling for. So he gave over the Sadducees to Shemad They took care of them. Whatever they did is not part of the story. And interesting enough, Alexander, of course, wanted his a bust of himself to be put in the temple because, you know, that's how he... Celebrate! It. it was a, a sign of uh, of his rule that his that his bust or his idols were wherever he was going. So Shemitzalik said, "I got a better idea. You don't want to put a statue there. It's uh, it's worthless. It's a piece of stone." So he offered him a few things, and one of the interesting things he offered was: every boy born that year, whether it means every boy to the priestly family or every Jewish boy, will be named Alexander. Hence, we have the name Alexander as a Jewish name. Now, over the years, it's changed. I have a friend whose name is actually Alexander, but I have a boy in my class. They sort of took the last part of the name called Sender. Sender is, is uh, you, you sliced up the name of Alexander. So Alexander, amazingly enough, became a Jewish name. Anyways, Alexander dies after about 6 years of rule and his his uh, his whatever he conquered, his world uh, was broken up into three kingdoms. There was the southern kingdom, which we'll call North Africa. There was the northern kingdom, which is Syria, probably Persia, probably, you know, Iraq, Iran, the Middle East. And then it would seem that Greek was like part of that third group, but it seems they don't play such an integral part in our stories. Now, it's interesting, the northern and southern kingdom are obviously connected by the land of Israel. The land of Israel during those times was always the conduit. That's how you traveled from, from the Middle East or from Asia or even from Europe a lot of times to North Africa and back and forth. So they were like the, they were the buffer. And at the beginning, the land of Israel was ruled by the southern kingdom. Now, it's not to say the southern kingdom didn't want the Jewish people to become Greek. They did want them to become Greek. And they did things to to undermine what they believed in. But they weren't... They weren't aggressive about it. They weren't killing people over it. They weren't fighting over it. They weren't making laws against it. They had their own insidious ways. But that lasted for a while. And then there's also that's the time period where the the Torah is translated into Greek. Right? It's called the Septuagint, if I'm pronouncing it right. That's the translation of the 70. One of the Tomei kings brought 70 sages, put them in separate rooms, said, I need a Greek translation and don't play with me. Because you know, I got 70 of you guys, and I'm going to know if you're playing around, because how many translations could there be? Now, there's a lot of issues that they had to deal with, and interesting enough, they actually um, did make, um, I think, four major changes, uh, many... Um, minor changes just so it would read without major questions and miraculously they all knew what everybody else was thinking and we have that translation of the 70 into Greek eventually the northern kingdom takes over the land of Israel and their kings were known as I, the Hebrew uh, way of reading it is Antiochus and most of the Hanukkah story is Antiochus Fourth. Epiphanes, I think, is the, is how they refer to him. And they they went after the Jewish people. They were going to become aggressive. We can't have everybody not doing our religion. We have to make everybody Greek. First of all, if you make everybody Greek, you uh, then they're not going to rebel because they're like you. So you made everybody Greek. So every country that conquers wants the people that conquer to be like them whether for military reasons, whether because you think you're the best, so why wouldn't anybody want to be like you? And certainly that was part of the Greek thinking, like, we are special. Why wouldn't you want to be like us? And there were three plus one, right? Torah already said they forbade all Torah study. Um, They said no circumcision because the Greeks worshipped their bodies. The body was perfect. That's why they're the ones that created the Olympics. They created the sports, the running, the throwing, the javelins, the, the weights, the, the, I don't know, all, all the different uh, types of original games all come from the Greeks because they worshipped their body. The body was perfect, and how can I make my body more perfect uh, than the next guy's body? So to do circumcision, to cut off something, means the body's not perfect. They couldn't handle that. They also said no Sabbath, and that they would kill you. And I would say, you went against the law. These were all capital punishments. Many stories, Jews would hide in caves, so they'd keep the Sabbath. And because, again, Sabbath says the world was created by God, and they had all their multiple gods, a lot of funny gods in Greek mythology. They fought with each other. They married people. I don't know, like, funny gods. Anyways. And also, you couldn't couldn't, um, declare the new moon. Uh, The Jewish calendar is based on a lunar calendar, and every month you declare when the month begins. That, they said, you can't do. You don't have a lunar calendar. You don't have the court declaring when the, the month begins. You can't have holidays. So that was their fight. They also, by the way, they would make you write on the horn of your cow, then I don't have a portion with the God of Israel. Um, they did things where if you wanted, if you didn't take your mezuzah, the scroll that goes on the doorpost, you didn't take it off, they took your door off. Uh, it was not from the easier times. And I don't know exactly at what point, but the Jewish, the, the religious Jews left Jerusalem. There was just no way for for religious Jews to stay in Jerusalem... The Greeks took over. They took over the Temple Mount. They broke a lot of holes in the walls. They they brought their idols there. They broke the altar. They they took over the temple. They made the temple into their own house of idol worship. For the religious Jews, it was easier to find places in the countryside where you wouldn't be as noticeable. You don't have to be in the big city. A lot, a lot, a lot of Jews decided it's way easier. And maybe they liked it better to be um to be Greek. So that's where you get into the beginning of the Hanukkah story, where you have Matis Yo. He is the father of the five sons of Judah and, and Eliezer and uh Yonasan and Yachan and Shimon, and he creates the revolt. There's a bunch of rabbis, a bunch of Tremendous scholars, not warriors. No matter what people want to say about Judah or the Maccabee, these are not warriors. These are a bunch of rabbis who would rather sit and study Torah all day long. And they began the revolt. They, they were called Maccabee because it's an acronym. Either it stands for Mihchemaychemayhem Hashem, who's like you amongst the mighty ones, God, or it was actually an acronym for Mattathias's name. Um, there's other possibilities, but that was the flag. That was the name they were called the Maccabeeim. And they actually fought three major battles. I-, I believe, according to Josephus, at the height, their army consisted of 6,000 soldiers. And they're fighting armies of 50, 60, 80,000 armies coming. I mean, these were modern in those days, those were modern Greek armies. They had elephants. nowadays we have tanks, they had elephants Um, trained soldiers and three different battles and the Matasiro did not survive he didn't live, he was old he didn't live to actually see any of the battles as far as I know, Judah took over and and, uh, they won those three battles there were going to be other battles over the years but after the three battles they were able to go up to the temple they go up to the temple, there's still a lot, of, a lot of fighting to be done, but there's a lot of cleanup work. You, you gotta, your temple's been overrun by idol worshippers. You've got a lot of cleanup. You don't have any vessels. You, you don't have anything. You, you have a, a basic building. got to get rid of your old altar, build a new altar. And what the Jewish people wanted, it was a battle, as we said from the beginning. The, it wasn't a battle. The Greeks were happy to let us live. The Greeks were not looking to kill the Jewish people. The Greeks were looking to destroy the religion they wanted they were after our soul, not after our body so so since it was a battle for the soul, we wanted we almost like wanted a sign from God that you see this is a battle for our soul and and show us God a miracle that shows something that has to do with spirituality, something with purity. And that's why they were looking for pure olive oil, pure meaning untainted, not touched or defiled by the Greeks because the Greeks on purpose wanted to defile everything. That's what they did. That's what they were looking for because that's what they were fighting. And, of course, they find the one jar. It was interesting. I asked my class today. So the one jar of oil lasted all eight nights. That one jar lasted all eight nights. So I asked my class today. I said, so... uh, So, explain to me, describe to me, what was the miracle? What happened with this jar? And it's really a great question because if you've never thought about this question, it happened to be multiple answers. But if you've never actually thought about this question, you don't have a good answer, right? You're not putting a wick in the jar, right? So, the idea was this jar had enough oil to fill up all seven cups. Of the menorah, so some say they only filled up an eighth each night, and even and and even though you really need a full cup, that the fire should burn the entire night. Here, the eighth of the cup burned the whole night. That's one answer. Second answer is they completely filled up all the cups. The jar is empty. The the pitcher, whatever it is, of oil is empty. Now you have two different options. Either you could say that the oil in the cup just kept replenishing so they didn't have to refill it up each night or you can say the oil in the jar kept replenishing and that's why they had oil for each night but in any case so this is the miracle which is really fascinating right and as we won these major battles but we celebrated through the oil and there goes the music the music is playing i hope you enjoyed it short and sweet thank you of course for all wonderful sponsors. you listening know, i can't do it without you Tango on the production team, we have Alan in the back. I have left to some food for thought. Until next time, I am Rabbit T. Jacobson. You've been listening to Let's Talk Toro on NM Streamcast. Until next time, don't forget to think about it. There's a house.